Well, if you grew up in an English-speaking country, you're probably familiar with the nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosy, or Ring Around the Roses, or Ring a Ring of Roses, or there's all kinds of variations to the rhyme, which is usually acted out by kids holding hands and then in a circle, circling around, singing out the, the chant. The version I usually, I learned growing up went like this, Ring Around the Roses, Pocket Full of Posies, Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down. And then everyone in the circle would happily collapse to the ground in a heap of bodies. Now, no one really knows what the nursery rhyme is talking about. Maybe it's talking about nothing. One of the more popular but and amusing theories, but probably highly unlikely, is that kids are unknowingly singing about the bubonic plague. <laughs> but anyway, while, while there are many variations, almost all of the rhymes end the same way, or a similar way. With the same four words. We all fall down. A seemingly sad ending to a joyful kid's chant. You know what else essentially ends with those same four words, but not said so explicitly? The beginning pages of God's grand story of everything. Once God created the universe beautifully and perfectly and harmoniously and joyfully, all of a sudden, the account of creation ends in tragedy. As the pinnacles of creation, humanity, us, created in God's image, all fall down. Two weeks ago, I began a new sermon series that looks to explore the greatest story ever told. And we all have individual stories of our lives that we could tell this morning and share with each other. But but each one of our stories is actually a part of a much larger story. God's story. A grand story. A a true story. A universal story. A story of history. And it is only once we find our stories within this greater story that our lives begin to take on any lasting meaning or significance. In case you weren't with us last time, I'll have to do a little bit of review here at the beginning because each part of the story is completely dependent on the other parts. If you picked up a new novel to read this weekend, you wouldn't start by flipping open to chapter 2. And reading that first. Otherwise, the whole story wouldn't make sense to you. Well, today is chapter 2. Okay, so I'm going to recap chapter 1 and then we'll go from there. But first, I think it would behoove us to pray. As Jason sang about. To pray that God would be with us today and his help and blessing would be on this time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. As we come to your word and see what you have written for us to read and to study and to learn from, to to get to know you through these pages, God. I pray for your spirit to work on each one of our hearts that has come in these doors today, that we would be receptive, that our hearts would be soft, that we would be molded by your spirit, and even when some of these truths are hard, help us to accept them, God. Help us to have faith in you, to believe that you have done what you said you've done for us, that you love us and you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in week one, we started with the only appropriate place we could start, with God himself. We began with Genesis 1.1, the very first words in the Bible. And we saw how God predated everything, how he created everything, how he sustains everything even to this day. We looked at the major attributes of God, what God is like, to ensure that we have an accurate view of who God is. We don't want a false God. We want to be worshiping the true God. So we saw that he is self-existent and eternal and all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, loving, glorious, so much more. As we explored how this amazing God created everything, we also saw that he created out of himself, and so he created everything inherently good. It's perfect. 
And the best part of his creation, he tells us this, was his creation of people. His pinnacle. We're, we're so small in the universe that sometimes it seems like we should have no significance. But the fact is, God has infused us with great significance. Because we're created in His image. That's what gives us our inherent worth. We're created in His image, and He cares about us. Baffling though it may be. But though we're the pinnacle of creation, we're by no means the point of creation. We saw that very clearly as we jumped ahead to Romans 11, where Paul said this in Romans 11, the end of the chapter, said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And these verses helped us to see the, the really main point of last week, this, our summary sentence, or big idea of the first part of the story, and that is that God created everything pervasively, perfectly, with a pinnacle, from himself, out of himself, and for himself. It's all for him. God made all things. He allows all things. He owns all things. He will receive all things. All of existence was designed to display his glory and worth and honor, including every minute of every one of our lives. We were made for more. And that more is God himself and his glory. But all this begged an obvious question, which I hinted at last time. And that is, so if, if God created everything absolutely perfectly, then why isn't everything perfect? If creation was very good, then why is there obviously so much bad in the world? Where did evil come from? Suffering, pain, death, cancer, mosquitoes. <laughs> why, why is this? Why, and so on. But let's just say it's unfortunate that the story doesn't end after page two. Because something happened after that, a plot twist, if you will, that made all the poop hit the fan. See this tragic plot twist. I'll have you open your Bibles to Genesis 3, which is actually on the end of page 2. Genesis 3. Prepare yourselves, okay? This week is going to be chock full of bad news. But without the bad news, we wouldn't have the good news either. Okay, so keep that in mind. In fact, the utter depths of the bad news that we're going to see today only makes the good news that much more spectacular when we get there. We have to explore the depths first. Okay, so once you find your spot, follow along for me as I read from God's Word. We'll start, actually, I'll just be skimming a bit. Back in chapter 1, at the end, verse 31, said this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very Good. And then chapter 2 gives us some additional pertinent details. In verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and, uh, of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Now, in those verses, I already see that God made mankind perfect, but he also gave him some freedom. He gave him some freedom to exercise moral choices. He wanted our worship and love and obedience to be chosen, not forced. So that's why he put these two trees in the garden. But he also laid out in these verses clear consequences if we chose to do wrong. And in chapter 3, we did terrible wrong. The devil, a fallen angel, slithered up disguised as a serpent and instigated our willful rebellion against our Creator. Look with me in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so it began. Sin's deceptive sway. Death's merciless reign. Suffering's universality. And humans attempting to cover up their sin with all kinds of fig leaves, and hiding from God in shame, and shifting all the blame elsewhere. Major point we learn from this part of the story begins this way. Despite our perfect starting point, we humans have fallen into despicable sin. God created everything, including us, perfectly good, innocently good, for His glory. But despite all of that, we have all fallen into indescribably despicable sin. You know what sin is? Most of us probably have some kind of idea in our minds of what sin is. But I propose to you today that none of us have a strong enough view of sin. Because if we truly understood the magnitude, the the nefariousness of sin, I believe we would weep at even the mention of it. For a really simple definition, sin is anything that is thought, said, or done against God's ways. Okay, that's very simple. The Bible describes sin in many different ways, like missing a mark. That's the actual meaning of the word, like an archery, missing an archery target. Wandering, straying away from a path, 
lawlessness, faithlessness, iniquity, ungodliness, unrighteousness, immorality, rebellion, folly, deviance, blindness, delusion, and more. Okay, it kind of gives us a, a little picture of what it's talking about. For Adam and Eve, the turning point was in Genesis 3, 6. In verse 6, it said, So when the woman saw that the tree was good, sorry, lost my place. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now notice here, sin was something good that was corrupted. Verse 6 said the tree was good for food. It was was something that appeared innocent and desirable. It's hard to resist. Sin is like that. It can look really good on the front end and end up betraying you dearly. We also see two different varieties of sin right away from both Eve and Adam. There are sins of commission, things that we do, actively do against God. And then there are sins of omission, good things that we should do, but we don't. That's also sin. Eve's first sin was a sin of commission as she took and ate. Adam also took and ate, but he had already sinned, I think. He had already sinned by not doing the right thing. As he stood right there and let his wife fall, not protecting her at all. Cornelius Plantinga says, Sin is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. Both transgression and shortcoming. And with Adam and Eve's sin, their first sin, which involved unbelief and disobedience, pride, idolatry. We humans attempted to place ourselves above our Creator and aspired to be like God. And this first human sin would give birth to thousands of different permutations of evil. The results? Disastrous. Look how God responded to all this in Genesis 3. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust." And here's the most heartbreaking part, and to dust you shall return. Matt Chandler powerfully describes this scene after, after the fall this way. Right after they took the fruit and ate of it. The next sound you hear in the Garden of Eden is the heaving, lurching, ear-splitting shatter of shalom. Of God's peace, screeching violently out of phase with the pitch perfect rhythm and harmony of his original creation. 
Outright rebellion had been declared against the King of Glory. And suddenly these experiences, we know all too well now ourselves, guilt, regret, panic, disbelief, nervousness, blame, self-hatred, hypocrisy, all come shuddering through Adam and Eve's bloodstreams for the first time in their lives, like ice water. And both of them ran and hid and hoped to God they'd somehow gotten away with it. We do recognize these experiences all too well, don't we? We frequently experience the same results. Haven't you ever been racked with guilt over something you said or did or regret? Haven't you ever panicked when you thought some secret sin of yours might be found out? Haven't you ever tried to make excuses or to blame others for your faults? We've all been there, done that. Now, some of you may resist that idea a bit because you don't feel like that bad of a person. We generally think of ourselves as pretty good, at least more good than bad. Or even if you know mentally that you're a sinner, you don't sense that it's that big of, an, uh, that big of a deal, that big of an issue. You, you aren't overwhelmed at all by your sin. You're not even emotionally moved. You definitely don't hate sin. And this is what I'm talking about. We need a deeper, fuller understanding of our wickedness. Why? Because we will never fully grasp God's grace if we don't first grasp our sin. It will never happen. And if you don't grasp your God's grace, you won't be saved. At this point, I'm going to have us jump ahead in Scripture to Romans 1. We jumped from Genesis to Romans last week. We're going to do it again this week. Romans 1, that's on page 939 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of them. Romans 1 gives us perhaps the most blistering indictment ever against humanity. Follow along and I think you'll see what I mean. We'll be starting in Romans 1, verse 18. says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they, that's us, so we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you notice here how everything started? By suppressing truth and not worshiping God. That's how everything started. We, as a human race, should have known better. It says his power and his nature, his attributes, were clearly evident to us. But no. We listen to the devil and his lies, suppressing the truth about God. And so, we did not treat God as God, leading to all kinds of idolatry. Back in verse 21, it said, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for all kinds of other images. And we do the same today. Whenever we do not treat God as God, it's sin. Notice, it's the distortion of our worship that led to the distortion of everything else. Matt Chandler again says, We are a worshiping people. Worship is an innate desire, an instinct, and an impulse wired into us by God himself. This is a gift from God. But what happens when instead of using that gift of worship from God for God, we terminate our worship on the stuff God made? What happens when we attempt to hijack God's story about himself and rewrite it with ourselves at the center? This is insurrection. This is an infernal mutiny. We just think sins are little no-nos that deserve a slap on the wrist. Romans 1 describes a vicious progression of sin. God giving us up to one thing after the other. He wa- we wanted to sin, and so we did sin, and then we wanted more sin. So God allowed it. He let us do our thing. Interesting, though. God's judgment is sometimes to give us what we want. His judgment is sometimes no longer restraining us from doing worse things. But did you notice the final step of the progression as it goes along? The floodgates are opened. In verse 29... They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, here's the most penetrating thing about this list. Every single one of us is on it. Probably multiple times. Maybe we're not all ruthless, murderous God-haters, but we might as well be. Have you ever been envious of someone else's talents or abilities? Have you ever coveted? Wish that you had something that someone else owned? Maybe their house or their car or their spouse? 
Have you ever caused strife in any of your relationships with others? That's here. Have you ever disobeyed anything your parents told you to do? Have you ever boasted about some impressive achievement you accomplished? Have you ever gossiped? Said something negative about someone else behind their back? Have you ever been foolish? you ever been faithless? Seriously doubting your faith? I would have to confess to all of the above and more and worse. It's difficult. It's difficult to watch a TV commercial or go online or have a conversation with anyone, or even just to simply think thoughts without committing many of these sins. We are absolutely sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We have done many of these things, and one bite of the fruit is enough. Every single one of these things deserve God's wrath. That's what it says here, because every single one of these things is rooted in selfish, idolatrous, prideful displacement of a holy and almighty God. And that's why Paul says here in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So, envy deserves death. Disobedience to parents? Death. Gossip? Death. Slander? Death. Coveting? Death. Hatred? Death. This is God's holy and righteous decree. And we are fools to fight it. Perhaps the most foolish thing of all isn't that sin is merely committed in our world. It's that it's celebrated. We flaunt our freedom to live however we please. We applaud those with progressive sexuality. We extol being proud Youthful rebellion is encouraged by peers. We foster a culture of covetousness. The freedom to murder children is praised as a basic human right. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And in case you somehow think you're the exception to this universal norm, you're not. Paul goes on later in Romans to say this in chapter 3. He says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then later in the chapter, the very famous verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now remember last week, we were created for God's glory. Whenever we sin, we fall short of his glory. In other words, we fail at our very purpose of existence. That's sin. We put ourselves in God's place, exchanging the glory of God for images of ourselves. 
I hope you can see. This is despicable. Blasphemous. Inexcusable. And damnable. We've already talked a little bit of the horrendous results of our sin. But I'd like to lay out the main ones for you today as we develop our big idea. Because we need to understand this shocking seriousness of our sin. So, okay, first point we saw that despite our perfect starting point, we humans have fallen into despicable sin. And the first result actually reverberated throughout the created order. We cursed creation. Okay, we've fallen into despicable sin, cursing creation. We saw this back in Genesis 3, where God said as part of his curse on Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Another description of this can be seen again in Romans. You can flip ahead just a few pages from where you were to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 20, says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is not how things were supposed to be. This is a curse. That's our fault. Paul describes it here in Romans as though as if nature is actually experiencing the intense pain of childbirth. Shaking and screaming and piercing pain. You know... We in Ottawa are given a vivid reminder of this curse every spring about this time. Right when we're all experiencing the excitement of a new spring with all its warm weather and flowers and new leaves and green grass everywhere, our bliss is broken by the reminder that we have an out-of-control dandelion infestation. (laughs) Have you ever thought of that? Dandelions are a reminder of the fall. They're by no means the the worst weed out there, but they're everywhere. So every time we lament having to pull out a big whopping dandelion out of our lawn or our gardens, or we're annoyed by the, the vast fields of yellow and now white instead of green, we can remember, cursed is the ground. Because of our sin. That's just the beginning of the horrific results of our sin. So we saw in Romans 1, when we sin, we often brutally hurt other people. So, despite our perfect starting point, we humans have fallen into despicable sin, cursing creation, and harming others. Harming others. This is the horizontal aspect of sin. Sexual sins, even lust, inevitably involve sinning against another human being, often dragging them into our own sin. Gossip and slander hurt others with our words, often viciously. Anger and rage are often directed towards those we love, creating strife. Hatred, which, God, which Jesus equates with murder. Envy, malice, lying, violence, disobedience. So many of our relationships here on earth are shattered to pieces because of our sin. Our world is so broken. And so many of you can attest to that. Even in Genesis 3, we saw two aspects of our sin against one another. We can harm others with our sin by leading them into sin, like Eve did, 
She gave the fruit to her husband and encouraged him to eat with her. Or we can harm others by hurting them with our own sin, like Adam did. Adam hurt his wife by not protecting her. But he did far more than that. He actually hurt every single human descendant of his. He damaged every one of us. Sin brutally harms other people. Don't ever believe the lie that it's harmless. But not only do we strike outward with our sin, we also strike inward, injuring ourselves. We humans have fallen into despicable sin, cursing creation, harming others, and marring ourselves. Okay? We have seriously marred ourselves with our sin. Over the past few years, a lot of people got into watching the TV show Breaking Bad. And you may be one of them, but the show is about a high school science teacher's slow descent into organized crime. And in the five seasons, this guy, Walter White, went from a, a shy, depressed, pathetic man into a, a diabolically devious drug kingpin and mastermind. But as the show goes on, what I found interesting about it was that when you come to realize is that Walter didn't change that much. You come to find out things all along the way that the brokenness that was inside of him had been there all along. He was always a selfish and brutal man. It just started to show itself more and more. And here's the thing. None of us are breaking bad. We're already badly broken. We're broken by sin, even from birth. Now, some of you may be startled by that idea because you see a precious, little, cute, seemingly innocent baby. And you think, there's no way they're a sinner. There's no way. We must start out good, and then somewhere along the way, along the line, we get corrupted. And that's the way that the vast majority of our culture would assume things work. But if you've ever been a parent, you know how bunk that theory is. We don't teach our kids to be selfish, lying, stealing, violent, little disobedient sinners. They just are. It comes out instinctually. Now, don't get me wrong. They are also precious, awesome, beautiful gifts from God. Okay? But they're also little sinners. They're born that way. I'll ask you to turn with me to Psalm 51. Back in the middle of the Bibles. We'll finish up here today. Psalm 51. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 474. Psalm 51 was a song that was written by King David after likely his worst sin. After he slept with one of his top soldiers' wife, impregnated her, and then after his cover-ups didn't work, he schemed to have his soldier murdered. And he was murdered. Psalm 51 happened after that. It's, it's basically a psalm of contrition, confession. But look with me at what David admits in verse 5. And then we'll read some of the others again in a minute. But verse 5, he says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It goes back even before birth. We're conceived as sinners. We're born sinners. And then we continue to sin in our lives, continually sinning against ourselves. And because of our sin, we have significantly marred the precious image of God inside of us. We can, we can still reflect our Maker in some ways, but our ability to has been severely damaged. God gave us an amazing gift when he placed his image inside of us. And we broke it to pieces like a shattered mirror. 
And that leads right into the final horrible result of sin. The worst of them all. We've fallen into despicable sin, cursing creation, harming ourselves, mar- or harming others, marring ourselves, and warring against God. With our sin, humanity declared war against God, against our holy and loving Creator. Back in Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9 have to be two of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture, which go like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, God knew where they were. But can't you just hear his heart breaking with those words? Where are you? Where was this, the closeness we had before? The intimacy, the fellowship. Man was hiding in shame. But they were also repairing their lying excuses. They might as well have been sharpening their swords and stringing their bows. Though sin harms creation, each other, and ourselves, all of our sin is first and foremost against God. Look with me again in Psalm 51, where David makes a shocking statement in verse 4. It says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now remember, David just committed adultery and murder. And yet he said to God, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How is that possible? Well, whose law had he broken? Uriah's? Bathsheba's? No. He blatantly disregarded God's holy law. Yes, he sinned against others, but his first and his worst sin was against God, his loving creator. And this is why, this is why all sin no matter how seemingly small or insignificant it might seem, is worthy of death. David Platt tells a story of a friend who shared the gospel with a taxi driver in another country. And the taxi driver was having a hard time seeing why his sin was so bad. After all, he, he wasn't that bad of a person. So why, couldn't, why would God judge him harshly? Pretty good guy up with that so the driver asked or the other man in the car asked him so if i slapped you in the face what would you do to me the taxi driver answered i'd throw you out of my taxi the other the other man asked so and what if i went up and slapped a random guy on the street what would happen and the driver replied he'd probably call his friends over and you'd get beat up Continued, what if I went up to a policeman, slapped him in the face? Well, you'd be beat up for sure. And then you'd be thrown in jail. Finally, he asked, what if I went up to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? The driver chuckled. He answered, oh, my friend, you would die. man asking the questions then concluded, So you see that the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who is sinned against. Ladies and gentlemen, we have slapped the king of, the king, king of kings in the face over 
and over again. And therefore, we deserve to die. Sin is an absolute abhorrence affront against God. It is an affront to his holiness, to his love, to his providence, to his sovereignty. You remember the quote I gave you last time from Abraham Kuyper, who said, There is not a square inch in, all the whole, in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Okay? I ran across another powerful quote that springboards off that one from Jared Wilson. He said, There is not a square inch of my daily life over which my flesh does not cry, Mine. We want to be sovereign. There's only one sovereign. Sin is a war against God. We have dug our trenches. We keep firing off our weapons. And because of this, we can begin to despair. What hope is there then? Let me tell you. There shouldn't be any. There shouldn't be any hope for us. Ever. But there is. Only by the sheer mercy of God there is salvation available to sinners like you and me. Which is next week's part of the story. But this week, We sense the desperate need for part three, don't we? That's how we're going to conclude, by looking forward in hopeful anticipation. Here's how I put the final point. Hey, despite our perfect starting point, we humans have fallen into despicable sin, cursing creation, harming others, marring ourselves, and warring against God, from whom we desperately need salvation. We've fallen into sin, warring against God, from whom we desperately need salvation. Now here's what I'm deathly afraid of doing today by dwelling so much on sin. I am afraid of sending you off in one of two different directions, opposite directions, which are both wrong. On one front, I'm afraid of sending you into despair. The other, I'm afraid of sending you into self-righteousness. Because even though our condition is dreadful, we should never despair. Because there is always salvation available even to the worst sinners. Okay, we're going to see that next week. Don't despair about this. There's always salvation available to the worst sinners. But I also hope dwelling on our condition doesn't just make you want to be better, do better, to to try harder to avoid sin, to to be a better person, to be less bad more often. Because while those things aren't, aren't bad to do, they will never fix your problem. We've deluded ourselves into thinking that some better version of ourselves will solve our sin issue. That one day we'll get over it. We'll grow out of it. Nope. Or that being more religious will win us enough points to make God happy with us. It's got to happen, right? Nope. We will fail again and again at our attempts to redeem ourselves. Why? Because Scripture says that not only are we stuck in sin, we are dead in sin. Dead people don't raise themselves. Well, we desperately need is what David realized he needed here in Psalm 51 after he sinned. Look with me at the beginning, verse 1. Have mercy 
on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We, we need cleansing, washing, forgiveness. We need mercy. He goes on, look down in verse 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. We need a transformed heart from the inside out. God needs to change us. We need God to do what only He can do to save us from sin and Satan and death and hell. And this final point for today could sum up, if you think about it, really almost the entire Old Testament. Okay? The whole Old Testament is God's story of His people trying to deal with their sin. And God stepping in, guiding them back to Him, and then them falling again. And then God constantly pursuing, and people constantly needing salvation. This is why God sent a flood to judge sin. This is why we needed an ark to save us from sin. This is why we needed God to give His people a law to restrain the influence of sin. This is why we needed temples and priests and sacrifices to obtain some level of mercy for sin, of atonement. This is why we needed numerous prophets to warn us about the judgment for sin, to call people to repentance of sin, and to point people ahead to when God would completely save His people from sin. Ultimately, of course, this is why we needed a cross. Back in Genesis 3, we get a couple hints of this coming salvation. After Adam and Eve fell and the curses were handed out, do you remember what God did next? We didn't read it. But what he did after this? He killed an animal. Don't know what kind. He killed an animal in order to make clothes for his kids. Innocent blood had to be shed to cover up our shame. In verse 21, it said, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God did this, not them. God did this. It's his story. And it's an absolute foreshadowing of what comes next. When innocent blood was shed at Calvary to cover our shame and to clothe us with righteousness. If you are feeling overwhelmed today by your sins against God, you don't just need to come back next week. You can run to the cross today. You need to. You can find mercy there to cover your every offense. See the empty tomb where Jesus triumphed over the power of sin and death forever. And see in Jesus your only hope for salvation. We've done this before, but you're still feeling the, the guilt and the shame of your sin today. Do that again. Really, we should do this daily anyway. Run again to the cross for mercy. Not to get re-saved, but to find mercy there. To find grace, because we need it every day to preach the gospel to ourselves. We fell. We fell 
hard and far. But amazingly, the, another type of falling is what we actually need. We need to fall at God's feet, asking for mercy, to fall at the feet of the cross. Because, well, God gave us up to all kinds of evil and sin. He didn't give up on us. The lesson of these first two weeks could be summed up this way. Okay? God is far greater than we could ever imagine. And sin is far worse than we ever imagined. But sin is not the end of the story. Maybe unfortunate that the story didn't end after page two. But we're extremely fortunate that the story doesn't end after chapter three. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, here we are. You see us in all of our wickedness and evil and shame. You know what we deserve. We deserve never to see your face again. We need your mercy. Have mercy on us, O God. Pray for those who are here who are struggling with this, God, that you would convict them of their sin. Enable them to run to the foot of the cross today and find mercy there. You are so good to us, even when there's no good in us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your salvation in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.